This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. Now, Nicola Sturgeon has been doing the rounds today since announcing her plans for the Scottish independence referendum. James, how's that been going for her? So, everyone knows that Boris Johnson is not going to grant this Section 30 order to Nicola Sturgeon. The general expectation is that the UK Supreme Court will say, no, you can't have a consultative referendum because the Constitution is a reserved matter and so not within the competence of the Scottish Parliament and that means that Nicola Sturgeon falls back on her plan to try and turn the next UK general election into what she is calling a de facto referendum on independence. Now there was some confusion this morning because John Swinney at one point implied that if the SNP won a majority of seats uh, in Scotland in those elections that they would consider that a mandate for independence. It's now being clarified that uh, he said he didn't hear the question properly, and that he mean that it would be a, a majority of votes. Now, it's by no means certain that the SNP will get a majority of votes. So this is the risk that Nicola Sturgeon is taking, which is, if you say this is a de facto referendum on independence, and the SNP get in the, don't get over 50% of the vote, then, well, have you had your referendum and not won it, which is the problem. I also think it is always quite dangerous for a politician, as Ted Heath will tell you, to try and tell the electorate, what the election is about. The electorate sometimes don't agree. I think, though, this is going to have a big impact on the way the election plays out across the UK. I think the Labour Party were eyeing something for revival in Scotland in 2024. In Anna Sawa, they have a more accomplished leader than than the last several leaders of Scottish Labour. And they also have a clear argument, which is, look, if you want to boot out Boris Johnson and the Tories, the simplest way to do it is to vote for the Labour Party, that you know, the SNP can't form a government at Westminster, Labour could. And I think the surgeon is trying to avoid that squeeze because I think she will hope that the SNP base will turn out because this is the de facto referendum on independence. I also think you will see the Tories trying to say, ah, oh, look, Nicola Sturgeon wants to treat this as a de facto referendum on independence. Can you be sure that Keir Starmer won't do a deal with the SNP if it's a hung parliament? And so this will affect the dynamics of the, of the UK general election. But I think the fact, in a way, is for Nicola Sturgeon, the problem is she has been forced into this referendum ahead of her timetable. And I think that this is... I, I think this is this is not a situation that she would have wanted to end up in. And I think she the the danger for her is that you don't get the kind of at the best the, the, the because the UK government is not going for a kind of dramatic you cannot have a referendum you know, it's just gonna say, look, you don't think now is the right time. What Nicola Sturgeon had hoped to do was to conflate Scotland's right to have a referendum with support for independence. I think that has been complicated by the UK government strategy of de-dramatising. I also think there's another complicating factor for her, which is that the current president of the Supreme Court is a Scot. So it's harder to suggest that somehow, you know, Westminster's court is blocking the will of Scotland when it's actually a Scottish judge who is the president of the Supreme Court. I think if you're looking as to why the Scottish government is doing this now, clearly there's been pressure from the grassroots, from the membership, speaking to SNP MPs. I think they feel this has landed very well with the membership membership you know just in the in the few hours after the announcement um, they could sense that but I think there's also 
In fact, which is, what are the ingredients which benefit the SNP the most in an independence referendum? And I think there is a strong sense that Boris Johnson being prime minister is one of them. And actually, were you to move to territory where you had, you know, a Labour government and partly leaning to James's point, which is this idea that, you know, those who want to oust the Tories at all cost could vote Scottish Labour. Again, I think... For some, the issue of independence is more prescient when they think that it is going to be a Tory government for decades and is also someone who they think is very divisive in the form of Boris Johnson. So therefore, if the next election, lots of people now believe, is most likely to be a hung parliament, perhaps Labour the largest party but not able to um, have a majority, what does that mean in terms of the the landscape? You could say that that will be better for left-wing parties, of course. And then also, will Boris Johnson even make it to the next election? So I think that there are political factors too which mean that when you're calculating not just in terms of pressure and sturgeon but what would do best for the SNP time is of the essence. And now James some of the NATO members have been meeting in Madrid today with some of the more controversial ones there like Turkey and they've been talking a lot about Sweden and Finland joining NATO. How much progress has already been made on this? Is it a formal inv- has a formal invitation been made? A formal invitation will be issued today. The, the, the obstacle had been that, that Ergodan was saying, no, 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 we can't agree to this because Sweden and Finland are too sympathetic to kind of Kurdish secessionists. There have been some compromises given to Turkey on that. The US has also greased the wheel of this transaction. You know, Turkey was very keen to buy F-16 fighters. The US was reluctant to sell them to Turkey because Turkey has also bought some military kit from Russia in recent years and the US didn't like that essentially the US has basically said quietly behind the hand if you drop your objections to Sweden and Finland joining NATO you'll get to buy your F-16s so so that is going to happen and Sweden and Finland joining does have a big effect on the alliance. It, it, I mean, first of all, it doubles NATO's border with Russia. Secondly, it gives NATO, uh, it makes it easier for the NATO to defend the Baltic states. And I also think we're seeing another thing going on here, which is previously NATO, what NATO has had on its eastern flank is what you might call tripwire forces. The idea that you have mixed NATO brigades so that, you know, any Russian invasion would end up with troops from not just from those countries being invaded, being killed, that would make it almost guaranteed that Article 5 would be invoked. And the idea is that that would deter Russia. What you, I think you're seeing now is going to be an enhanced NATO presence on its eastern flank in all these countries, designed not just to ensure that you ended up with Article 5 being triggered, but so that you could actually halt a Russian advance. And I think that that has been, that change in strategy has been driven by the Russian revanchism on display in Ukraine. And also, I think, by the atrocities committed there, there, there too. I think the big question here for NATO, though, ultimately is this, is Joe Biden is a very Atlanticist US president. You know, he was, a, he was already in the Senate when the Berlin Wall came down. This is a guy who has that generation's outlook on the US and its security commitments. The fundamental problem for NATO is that over time, the US's interests are going to move to the Pacific and to the great power competition with China. And I don't think that means that the US is going to leave NATO. It doesn't guarantee that the US is going to leave NATO or lose interest in NATO. But I think what it does mean is that keeping the US committed to NATO is going to require European countries to pull their weight more. And that means, you know, spending 2% on defence, which far too many don't do already. You know, Germany has said that it will it will now do so. You know, the UK does, France does, but, you know, you, you need 
I mean, all the European members of NATO to start spending 2% and be prepared to commit more forces because you see in this new NATO posture, you know, there's going to be a new US military HQ in Poland and the like. Ultimately, I think over time, the US military focus is going to shift to the Pacific. And I think also the other big question is, how does NATO work with the US's Pacific allies. You know, we see Australia at the NATO summit. You see an attempt through the G7 to bring Japan more into these discussions. And I think this is this is one of the other big questions, which is how do you, how do you create a way that uh, you bring to you uh, not necessarily by the creation of a, of a kind of new Asian NATO or two, but how do you create greater coordination between NATO and the US's Asian allies as you also try to counter China? Because yes, there's a big emphasis on Russia. But ultimately, I think that, you know, NATO is going to have to think more, and it is beginning to do so, but it's going to have to think more about China, because ultimately that is going to be vital to keeping the US involved and still regarding NATO as one of its primary alliances. And Katie, what did you make of Boris Johnson's claim today that if Putin were a woman, this invasion of Ukraine might never have happened? Is it an example of toxic masculinity? So it's a slightly strange comment. I, I, I'm not the first. I think lots of people have pointed out online that I don't think Catherine the Great falls into the model of, you know, demure, peace-seeking, um, not taking any bold decisions role. And I, I think generally speaking, also if you look at Thatcher and the Falklands, I think there's plenty of examples. I, I wonder if maybe we're at a point where obviously Boris Johnson and because he's been out of the country for so long, has to keep doing media and talking about these things. And obviously people need fresh news lines. But I think there's lots of critical things to say about Putin. I think reducing it to gender isn't quite the main issue here. And moving on to PMQs today, the two deputy leaders went head to head, Dominic Raab versus Angela Rayner. Katie, was it entertaining? I think you can definitely say it's more entertaining when Angela Rayner is doing PMQs than when Keir Starmer is, or at least entertaining from a perspective where they're trying to be entertaining. So you had Angela Rayner up against Dominic Raab, which is always an interesting one, because I think Dominic Raab and his team, they do find it quite a challenge to go up against uh, the deputy Labour leader. And actually, he tends to play it pretty straight. And today, he didn't play it so straight. So I think he tried a few, you know, jibes of his own. And one of them was uh, during their, their quite fiery exchanges. He brought up the fact that she went to Glyndebourne uh, recently and suggested that this uh, showed champagne socialism was back in full swing so in return lots of people said oh this is snobbish you're suggesting a working class woman can't enjoy the opera and I think it just shows you how tricky it is often for a Tory politician and a male one to, to, to counter Angela Rayner and I think it was also interesting some of her own put downs because at one point he tried to attack her for her support of Jeremy Corbyn bringing up his views on NATO and she hit back very very quickly well you were on a sun lounger when you know Afghanistan was being evacuated, which I think is quite um, a sore spot for Dominic Raab to this day. So, so lively, though, I think in terms of what we learned from both sides, I don't think we learned very much. I thought we learned something, though, which is PMQs is, is works better, especially for whoever is doing the questions from the opposition, when they're prepared to take risks and actually respond to what is being said. I think Keir Starmer's big weakness is that he is over-prepared. That Angela Rayner line about Dom Raab and the Sunlander was, was I 
think watching it kind of quite clearly an ad lib and it was an example of how she gets more traction because she's prepared to take more risks and go off script she causes um the tories more discomfort than starmer who 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 is very very cautious about ever deviating from the kind of you know from what his pre-planned lines lines of attack are i also think one of the other things that we learned today was that watching those two as Katie said it was more relaxed you realize just how much Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson dislike each other because this was this was old-fashioned political knockabout there was a kind of element of panto to it while as Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer you are reminded of just how much they both loathe each other and also Katie we've had an update on the privileges committee could you tell us about that Yes, so this is ultimately the investigation into whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament on Partygate. Now, Chris Bryant had to recuse himself, and there was an expectation that Harriet Harman, the former Labour deputy leader, would step in. She has now been elected by the committee as its chair. But I think the the most striking thing is actually when it comes to the terms of that inquiry, um, they said that Number 10 staff will be able to give evidence confidentially to the inquiry. So that means figures in Downing Street um, could... Uh, so long as they can you know, show their sourcing privately and provide their own evidence, they could give evidence, which means they're not going to be publicly named, which I think would suggest you're giving people who perhaps are in positions of power, where they worry about saying something that could get the prime minister or, the, or a senior member into trouble, um, you're giving them more ways to, to speak out. So I think it's probably one of those ones where it suggests the inquiry has more scope to be problematic for the prime minister. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thanks for listening. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.